but we are so glad uh, that you are here. So we are spending Christmas with the Apostle John uh, this year, and so we are in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, which is sort of going through what's known as the prologue of, of the Gospel of John, uh, the very beginning. Um, and so let's turn to those verses, John 1, verses 9 through 13. Before we get there, I should note that we have Julia Joy here for the first time, I think. So welcome. Always good to have new members uh, here. So very exciting. So let's turn to God's Word. John 1, verses 9 through 13, as always. Listen carefully as this is the Word of the Lord. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus, who is the true light. We think we know him. We think we know the story. We think we know the gospel. We're too familiar with Advent. And yet these verses say the world didn't know him. His own people didn't receive him. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to know Jesus more. And as always for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this Advent season. Speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. It is the Christmas season, and uh, often we uh, go visit people. Uh, I heard on the radio that one-third of all Americans are going to be on the road uh, this Christmas season. Uh, that is a lot of people. Um, and I thought about that, and have you ever been invited to someone's house, and you've never been there before. And he seems like a regular guy, you know, perhaps it's a guy from work, you know, he's three cubes down in the cubicle form that you've been sentenced to work in. And uh, he's invited you over to, you know, cook some uh, burgers and dogs, watch the big game on Sunday, and you say, sure, and you get directions to his house. Or these days you would just get the address and plug it into your GPS. And so Sunday comes, and you drive on out there, and he lives out in the country, and you go through a small village, and just outside of town, you come to an old road with an old wooden sign with his name on it and a creaky mailbox half hanging off the post. And you turn into the driveway, you notice the driveway is lined with daffodils carefully planted in front of rhododendron bushes, and it looks really nice. And then you pull up to the house, and it's one of those old stone mansions with tall white pillars and a big front porch. And here's your friend emerging from between the pillars, walking down the steps, coming to greet you, and you're sort of wondering about all of this. Approaching John's gospel is a little bit like arriving at an imposing grand old house. Most of you, hopefully, as readers of the Bible, know that this gospel is not quite like the others. 
you may have heard or begun to discover, it's got hidden depths of meaning. And though like a grand old house, its structure and ideas are imposing, it's not meant to scare you off. Instead, it's meant to make you feel welcome. And coming down, to, uh, coming down the steps to meet you is none other than a friend, the one whom the book is all about. And like many grand old houses, this book has a driveway and it brings you off the main road. And it tells you something about the place you're coming to before you actually get there. And so these opening 18 verses of John 1 are that driveway. In fact, they're such a complete introduction to the book that by the time you get to the story, you know a good deal about what's coming and what it means. And the more time we spend in the Gospel of John, the more we'll discover what a complete introduction to it these verses really are. And so with that understanding that we're sort of getting the snapshot big picture for the whole story to come, let's turn to this morning's text. And first of all, we want to see the light revealed. The light revealed. Verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now, if we're to understand this verse properly, we need to understand at the very beginning, it's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not as some people would say, the coming of sort of some generic light into all lives of all people, some sort of uh, powerful force. It's specifically talking about Jesus. In the Greek text that stands behind our English Bibles, the word translated coming refers to the light. And in this form, the reference is to the incarnation of Christ, not to some uh, general enlightening of men. And it's the view of all the major commentators. commentators. It's the view reflected in both the English Standard Version and the New International Version. And there are several reasons why uh, we need to understand this view, besides the fact that the Bible nowhere supports the idea of some kind of inner light for every person. First, this phrase, coming into the world, is frequently used by John for the coming of Christ. So, At the uh, story of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, the multitude exclaimed, John 6, when the people saw the sign that he, Jesus, had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Martha told Jesus in John 11, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In John 16, Jesus said, I come from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. In Jesus' answer to Pilate in John 18, we read, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So throughout John, we have this steady reference that this is Jesus who has come into the world. Second, this fits the context. It fits perfectly into uh, John's prologue, which proceeds from the ministry of Jesus before the incarnation through the preparatory work of John the Baptist to a description of the incarnation and then to men's response to it. 
And without this interpretation, John would be speaking of the reaction of men to Christ's coming before he actually says that he comes. So with it, it, it sort of flows much better. It makes a lot more sense. Now, it does say the light was coming into the world as the true light. Again, in Greek, there's two different but related words, almost always translated true in our Bibles. The first one is the word aletheis, which means true as opposed to false. So if you were to make a statement in a court of law, it would either be true or false, right or wrong. That's not the word that John uses here. John uses the word aletheinos. This word means true as opposed to partial. Or as when you got to court, they would ask you if you would say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, as opposed to just part of it. So we say the light of the Lord Jesus Christ is the true light, besides which all other lights are imperfect or misleading or partial. Unfortunately, we always make the mistake, uh, people everywhere, to mistake partial lights for the real one. And there's a number of sort of common examples. I'm just going to mention two. One light that men followed is the light of progress. A belief in progress based on the discoveries of science and reason, and it's linked at least psychologically to the theory of evolution. And men followed the light of progress in droves. And they thought, we're going to change the world. In fact, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a Christian publication, it still exists, called The Christian Century, because they said, this is the century that we're going to take over, and everyone will hear the gospel, and it's just going to be wonderful. And of course, the uh, dream of progress burst like a bubble in the 20th century. It was not, in fact, the Christian century, with a history of two world wars and endless conflicts. And most people today are willing to admit that that doctrine of inevitable progress was something of an illusion. Another partial light related to progress, uh, probably more current, is the pursuit of prosperity. We follow that dream to great excess here in America, and particularly here in Loudoun County. Thanks to us, much of the world now follows the pursuit of prosperity, or at least they would like to. The idea that happiness comes through annual salary increases, more and newer cars, bigger homes and summer homes, and absurdly expensive vacations. And once again, these things do have a limited benefit. They're relatively better than the kind of abject poverty we find in many parts of the world, in many parts of our own country. Certainly better than death by starvation, better than illiteracy, better than unemployment. Still, they're not the way to contentment. There are a ton of unhappy rich people in Loudoun County. Wealth doesn't make the heart of man right with God. So about 10 years ago, in the midst of the most prosperous age the world has ever known, Time Magazine spoke of ours as the age of anxiety and said we could find no cure. I don't think it's gotten better in the last 10 years. The world's lights are not necessarily false lights. They're imperfect lights. They're partial lights. They don't provide what we need 
to satisfy the inner hunger of our souls. And John is saying that the place where men and women can find adequate illumination about themselves, about life under God, is in Christ and only in Christ. We're to look to him. And those who do that will find that he is the one who's able to guide them through the darkest night, who's enabled them to distinguish between uh, the lights that are better and the lights that are worse. And it will cause them to grow spiritually. But that's not what most people do. They don't look to Christ. In fact, they look away from him. And thus we see the light rejected. Verses 10 and 11. The light rejected. Now, about approximately 13 hours ago, a group of people gathered to worship in Chengdu, China. Now, they couldn't worship it where they normally worship. Uh, because the government shut down their church and then blew it up. And it's a very large church, and it's the most Christian city in China. And so they picked the most Christian place and the biggest church to make an example of. Uh, almost all of the pa- 80% of the pastors and elders are in jail. 20% are under house arrest. Um, and they blew up their building just gone. This is a a large church, several thousand people. So this morning, a number of them, 3,000-member church, about 200 of them gathered to worship in a little park next to where their church used to be. And the police came and arrested all the worship leaders. They didn't have any pastors or elders because they'd already been arrested. So the people that stepped up to lead worship were arrested. This happened, like I said, approximately 13 hours ago. No provision was made for the children of all these leaders, of these elders and pastors. Uh, They were just left. So the people that remained had to sort of police up all the kids and make sure that they're taken care of. So there's a ton we pray about, and when you hear about that happening today, This Lord's Day. And then you read these words. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Hopefully they take on new meaning for you. I mean, if we go back to this situation that John's talking about, the idea that Jesus is an unknown. It's kind of a puzzling thought. And I suppose that in our time, the best known person in the whole history of the world is Jesus. His name is, not, is known not only in the West, so also in the East and in the South of the world. Indeed, the, the very farthest corners of the world. His name is on millions of tongues daily. And yet John is telling us for some 30 years from the birth of Jesus until the public ministry of John the Baptist, the Lord of glory was in the world of men and was unknown. I think there's some lessons there that Jesus was present and unknown. I think it points an instructive finger at the extent of the depravity of man. And it shows us that men and women are spiritually blind. Why didn't the world know and recognize Jesus Christ when he was present, 
Why did they have to wait till somebody announced him? Well, the first answer to that question, I think there's a lot of answers, and I'm just going to cover a couple. But the first one is, the world didn't want to know him. We know from experience that if a man doesn't want to see the truth, he won't see it. In exactly the same way, men and women uh, didn't recognize Jesus Christ primarily because they didn't want to. And a text that states this truth theologically, found two chapters later in John 3, it says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Could have been written this morning. Jesus was the light of the world. He came into the world. His light shone upon the uh, darkness of men and women, revealed the darkness for what it was, and men and women hated him for it. And therefore, they wouldn't acknowledge him to be God's son, the true light, the Lord of glory. Men and women simply didn't want to acknowledge Christ back then, and they don't want to acknowledge him now. And the point of John's statement is that men and women are so in love with their own sin, they don't want anyone to dissuade them from those sins. Second reason why the world didn't know Christ at his coming is the world couldn't recognize him. They were unable to recognize him. Not only did men not want to see him, they couldn't see him because they're spiritually blind. It's pretty much what we read in Paul's letters To the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, we read 1 Corinthians this time, chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's a picture of man's inability or spiritual blindness. And the result of such blindness is Jesus goes unrecognized. And when we understand this is an an accurate picture of man as God sees him, then we understand why it is that John the Baptist had to appear as Christ's forerunner. What's John the Baptist's ministry? Uh, The Apostle John tells us that John the Baptist came to bear witness to the light. And the point is that if he hadn't come to bear witness to the light, then no one, including likely Christ's disciples, would have noticed him. Jesus was the light. He was in the world, and the world went about its own business, not wanting to see him, not able to see him, until John the Baptist came and said, He's the light. Over there, look at him. He's the light. This is why I'm here. And when that was said, the world looked up with sightless eyes and asked, what is light? And they didn't respond until God reached down and began to touch their eyes so that some of them could see. And to some of these, the apostle Peter would later write, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we understood the significance of the fact that men and women 
didn't recognize Jesus when he came into the world, then we also begin to understand three of the most important teachings of John's gospel. The first is the glory of Christ. The second is the depravity of man, which is taught throughout Scripture. And the third is the necessity of God's sovereign and unconditional election as the basis of our salvation. Everything we've said so far substantiates the first two points. The glory of Christ is evident in the Gospels, and the depravity of man is demonstrated by the spiritual blindness of men and women apart from the unmerited grace of God in their lives. If there's any doubt about that, we only need to ask, after the light of the world was pointed out by John the Baptist, what did men and women do? And the answer is, people were forced to look upon Christ. And they responded not by falling down and worshiping as they should have done, but ultimately by crucifying him. The cross of Christ is the response of fallen men to God's goodness. And the third of John's teachings, the need for sovereign and unconditional election uh, by God as the basis of our salvation, flows out of the first two, and is fact taught just three verses farther on in John's gospel. It's true that people are totally unable to seek or find God on their own, then the only basis on which anyone ever finds God is that God comes seeking them. So we have two very important themes in the prologue here to John's gospel. The glory of Jesus and the depravity of man. And the glory of Jesus is described in verses 1 through 9. The depravity of man is shown by man's rejection of Jesus when he comes. And those two themes leave us with something of a very depressing picture at the end of verse 11. As a whole, men didn't know Jesus. By and large, his own people, who should have known better, rejected him. Are we to think then that nobody believed? Now, that would be false. So John points out that even though the Lord of glory was unknown by the world at large and rejected by his own people, nevertheless, there are some who received him. And so we see the light received, verses 12 and 13. The light received. These are great verses, especially since they come after those dismal verses of 10 and 11. And they're verses for us. They're verses for you personally. They remind us here at the very beginning of the gospel, even before the account of the crucifixion and resurrection, that the gospel of salvation by grace alone, apart from keeping the law, is freely offered to all people today. The important part of these verses is the part that declares that we become God's children, not on the basis of any human authority, but on the authority of Jesus. The verses say, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And at this point, someone could say, that's wonderful. It must be a great privilege to be a child of God. How do I become God's child? How does this relationship become mine? And the answer, which is the same answer given throughout the New Testament, is that you become a child of God through faith. This means you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God 
and believe that by means of his death and resurrection, he is your Savior. And we find that throughout the New Testament. The letter to Hebrews says, Hebrews 11, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Romans tells us, Romans 1, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Ephesians says, Ephesians 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Again in Romans we read, Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And it's the same in the opening verses of John's gospel. Jesus tells Nicodemus, beginning of John chapter 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Clearly, God's using this image of birth because it alone shows that the initiative lies with the father entirely and not with the son, not with the child. I mean, think about your birth. What did you have to do with it? Do you say, you know, I'd like to be a boy. I'd like to be born to Mrs. and Mrs. Smith because they seem like such a nice couple. Or did you say, I'd like to be a girl. I'd like to be five feet, six inches tall and have blonde hair. I don't think so. You had nothing to do with it. Instead, your father met your mother. Between them, they produced you. And you only realized what happened afterward, a long time afterward. But it's obvious that when God uses this image, he does so to show us that he alone is responsible for your salvation and that you believe only because he first created the life within you to do so. There's a lot of verses that support this truth by showing that the basis of our sonship... <coughs> somebody recently asked me, they said they had struggled with that concept of sonship uh, because they were a woman. And I said, well, and guys probably struggle with the concept of being the bride of Christ. Uh, so the sonship applies to men and women, and being the bride applies to women and men. I think men may get the sonship part better, but I'm pretty sure the women get the bride part better. Um, and we all have to live with it. It's just the way it is. Um, where was I? <laughs> Saying something really important here. Um, the basis of our sonship lies in God's electing love. John writes later in 1 John chapter 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Paul declares, Ephesians 1, God's predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. James says, James 1, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. If you exalt man in your thinking... He's able to take care of himself spiritually and eventually inch his way to heaven. There isn't much need for God. But if man is placed where he should be and where the Bible places him dead and trespasses and sins with a depraved will, utterly without any genuine spiritual potential, then God is where he belongs. He is great and mighty and altogether lovely as he really is. And the Christian who's come to see these things will look up from the dung heap of this world 
still covered with much of the world's garbage, and say, oh God, how could you love me? And when we get to that point, the love of Christ really begins to take hold of us. When you get to that point, we begin to learn that God has set things up this way so that it'll be with the bonds of love that we're drawn to Jesus. You know, I've always wondered, could you give an exposition of the whole Gospel of John at one time? I'm sure people have tried. Because you could conceivably stop at this point and say, well, there's nothing for us to do at all. But I'm not saying that. I'm saying the initiative is with God and salvation and that no one, absolutely no one, would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ unless God has taken the first step in planning his own life within those people. But you have to add that when God does take that first step in saving us, we are made able, we become able to obey him and follow his leading. By our rebirth, we're initiated into an entirely new series of relationships within his family. And that's what happens when we're becoming a child of God. Verses 12 and 13 are so important because they tell us how we become children of God. So I want you to fix in your minds this question. Not everyone is a child of God, am I? You can ask it to yourself right now, out loud. Let's do it together. Not everyone is a child of God, am I? And the difference it makes to you is this. Listen to Jesus' words. John 8, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, if we're not children, we're slaves. And the slave doesn't remain in the father's house. The children do. And what is at stake in becoming a child of God is eternal life. Do you get to stay in the Father's house or not? Ask yourself that a question again. Not everyone is a child of God. Am I? And now you could add, not everyone will have eternal life. Will I? So we turn to verses 12 and 13 for the all-important answer to the question, how do you become a child of God? What has to happen this morning to make you a child of God? And if you're a child of God, do you understand how you became one? And can you lead someone else into God's family, help them to become a child of God? Verse 12 sets two conditions, receiving and believing. It says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Receiving Jesus means that when Jesus offers himself to you, you welcome him into your life for what he is, for who he is. You accept the person and work of Jesus Christ in its entirety. I know those people like to choose, you know, I really like Jesus as Savior, not so much as Lord. I want him to send me to heaven. I just don't want him to tell me what to do. And you don't get to divide Jesus. There is no picking and choosing. It's one package. You either receive him or you don't. 
If he comes to you as Savior, you welcome his salvation. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. If he comes to you as provider, you welcome his provision. If he comes to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel. If he comes to you as protector, you welcome his protection. If he comes to you as the authority, you welcome his authority. And if he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. Receiving Jesus means taking Jesus into your life for what he is. It doesn't mean some sort of peaceful coexistence with a Christ who makes no claims on you, as though he can stay in the house as long as he doesn't play his music too loud. When Jesus preached in Nazareth in Luke 4, the people initially received him gladly. It says in Luke 4, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? But a few verses later, six verses later, it says they're filled with wrath and they try to throw him off a cliff. They're happy to receive him when his words were pleasing. But when their pride got poked, they rejected him. And it says they talked about throwing him off a cliff. That's serious rejection. Receiving Jesus doesn't mean this peaceful coexistence with a Christ who makes no claims on your life. Receiving Jesus means taking him into your life, your home, your school, your work, your marriage, your dreams for who he really is. That's the first condition of verse 12, receiving Jesus, the light of the world. The second condition is believing on his name. It says to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what does believing in the name of Jesus mean? We can do a quick tour of John's gospel to find out. First look at John 3.18. See that believing in the name of Jesus is virtually the same as believing in Jesus. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here, believing in him and believing in the name are used interchangeably. The name simply emphasizes the full stature and dignity and authority of the person. Next, we go to John 5. Receive and believe are used again in close connection the way they are in verse 12. It says there in John 5, I have come into my, in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe... When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You see what it's saying about belief? It implies you can't believe in Jesus if you believe in something else more. If you love the praise and glory of men. It means that believing is so contrary to pride and exalting yourself. It involves a deep humbling. It means abandoning the craving for human praise and caring more about the praise of God. Believing is not merely an assent to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. It's more than that. It's a deep humbling. Next look at John 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This verse teaches us that believing in Jesus means being satisfied with Jesus. It means that Jesus is the food that feeds the hunger of your soul. Believing is not merely intellectual assent to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And we could go on. These verses come up again in John 8 and in John 12. And all these texts, plus the ones we've seen, show that believing is a deep 
work in our heart, not a mere agreement with doctrinal facts. It includes breaking free from the craving for human praise and includes being satisfied with Jesus as the bread of life. We could go back and paraphrase verse 12 and say, but to all who receive Jesus into their lives for who he really is and who feed upon him as the all-satisfying bread of life, to them he gave authority to become children of God. However, between us and eternal life, there are two great obstacles. One is that we're spiritually lifeless and dead, and the other is we're sinfully corrupt and guilty. We cannot inherit, inherit life as children of God if we're dead and guilty. But God so loved us, he did two things. He sent his spirit to cause us to be born again, to awaken our hearts, to help us pass from death to life. And so he overcomes the first obstacle. And in perfect harmony with the work of his spirit, God sends his son to die for our sin, remove the guilt of all who believe in him. So the moment we believe in him, even though we're sinners, we're authorized to lay hold of the inheritance of the children of God, and the second obstacle is removed. This is a great salvation for sinners like you and me. It's full and free and corresponds to our exact need and condition. And I offer it to you this morning in the name of Jesus. Receive him as he really is. Believe in him as the all-satisfying end of your search for peace and truth and meaning in life. The final importance of this text is it gives the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ great boldness. One of the military campaigns of the Emperor Napoleon, he had more than one, has, there's a story where Napoleon had dropped the reins of his horse in order to read and sign some papers when the horse reared up and nearly unseated him. And a corporal of the grenadiers, a much lower-ranking soldier, leaped forward and caught the bridle of the emperor's horse so that in a few seconds he brought the animal under control. And Napoleon turned to the corporal and said, Thank you, Captain. Of what company, sire, asked the corporal, who had just been called the captain. He said, Of my guards, answered Napoleon. And in an instant, the young man set down his musket. He walked across the field towards the headquarters of the general staff. He tore off his corporal's stripes as he went, and he took his place among the emperor's officers. And someone asked, What are you doing? And he replied, He's a captain of the guards. By whose authority? By the authority of the emperor. It all depends on the authority of the commander involved. If one of the soldier's friends had called him a captain, the two corporals would have had a good laugh together, and that would have been it. But the title bestowed by the friend would have meant nothing. But when the emperor gave the order, the corporal seized on it instantly and was then received as a captain by the staff. In the same way, our position before God as God's children depends on the highest authority, the authority of the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, before whom every knee shall bow. And we can be as bold in seizing our rank as Napoleon's soldier was. Will we step back into the ranks 
and boast, Jesus has called me God's child, but fail to assume the privileges and the responsibilities of that position? Or will we take him at his word and come to God to enjoy all the privileges of being one of his very own children? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and understand these verses properly, then you will come to God as his child with great boldness because you are there on his authority. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our Lord, thank you that you have given us a story about light and darkness in the Gospel of John. A story that reminds us that we're sinful men and women who love the darkness but desperately need the light. A story that reminds us that we need a Savior who comes as the light of the world in order to save desperate men and women like us. Thank you for showing us that Jesus came to call us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. This Advent, we look forward to his coming. We look forward to his saving. And we give you great thanks for sending Jesus Christ, who has the authority to make us children of God. And he has that authority because he is the king who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.